Russell Ash has degrees in anthropology and geography. This year, he's produced the top 10 of everything 2007, just as he has done annually for the past 18 years. Russell Ash has contributed to over 100 successful titles, including Incredible Comparisons and Great Wonders of the World. He is regularly featured on radio and television in the UK and the US, where he's appeared on The Oprah Winfrey Show. He joins us now from London, England. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Russell Ash. Hi, how are you? Mr. Ash, I'd like to note that a few years back, my brother-in-law got a copy of your book for Christmas, and I spent a large part of Christmas Eve rummaging through its pages. Um, oh, I'm delighted to hear it. Yes. We're a non-commercial station, so I can't directly suggest to listeners they need to run out and buy a copy for Christmas uh, for a gift, but I would mention in passing that a lot of people like myself do enjoy your books, and 18 years of publishing success shows I'm not alone. Thank you. Your book has, uh, has 10 categories, starting with the universe and earth and ending with sports. Um, do you have a favorite category? I'm always pretty amazed by the ones that do with uh, anything to do with money. Um, not that I'm a mercenary person, but I just love these, these lists, of, as, as everybody does, of, of wealthiest people, multi-billionaires. But I'm also fascinated by what they do with their money, because we have lists of the highest prices paid for works of art, but also things like photographs, where you can now spend uh, $2.9 million on one photo or um, $171,600 on a teddy bear and that kind of thing, I think is just sort of extraordinary. And what happens in doing a book like The Top Ten of Everything for 18 years is you see these prices just steadily going up and crazier and crazier prices being paid. Good luck to them. I don't want to buy any of these things, but I'm really fascinated with what other people do with all their wealth. Well, it's funny you mention that because I had the book open to the page of artists with most works sold for over $1 million. Pablo Picasso has sold 298 works for over a million? I know, it's just staggering, isn't it? I mean, the, <laughs> yeah. I, the, the annoying thing with these things is that not that many years ago, um, and I don't think I could have afforded one, but I could have thought, I could have dreamed that I could have afforded one. Now I can't remotely afford one. <laughs> There's too many other people out there. It's like, you know, authors always say about books. There's too many other books or books by other people. There's too many other people who've got far more money than I have. Well, the world is constantly changing. Uh, what among your lists are the toughest things to track? Um, well, there are some that are simply impossible to do this, um, full stop. I mean, we, we uh, can't ever do a list of the ten most common names in the world because we imagine that they'd all be Chinese, and the Chinese simply don't publish that sort of information. Uh, it's impossible to do a list of the, uh, the ten biggest robberies that have ever taken place because they'd be even things like... Um, security and safe deposit boxes and that kind of thing where the information is just never made available. Right. But even allowing for the fact that the things that we can't do, um, actually, if anything, things have got easier to, to do over the years and things have got quicker to do. Um, when I started doing Top Ten of Everything 18 years ago, of course, we didn't have the internet. Um, we didn't have email communication with people. Um, now, I using uh, various uh, databases I can tap into on a daily basis and update things like uh, highest earning movie list, that kind of thing. Uh, with email contact, I can communicate all around the world with various consultants. And what's happened over the period I've been doing the top of everything is I've built up a kind of network of uh, experts and specialists in everything under the sun. Uh, I've got people around the world who, are, who know more than anyone else about poisonous snakes and tall buildings and uh, roller coasters and 
just name it. I've got somebody out there who's, who's the leading authority on it who feeds the information into me and updates it, which is absolutely fantastic because it would be impossible personally to, to keep hacking and updating just tens of thousands of lists, which is what my database now consists of. Well, a lot of the lists are, are very topical. Uh, I'd like to start with the very first uh, list in the book because uh, there was a big controversy this year over Pluto's demotion. But your very first list in the book notes that uh, even the planet Mercury is not in the top ten largest objects in our solar system. Doesn't which, quite make it, no. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we we have to monitor things like the you know this whole question about whether Pluto gets demoted and whether a, you know planet, there's a planet X and all that sort of thing. We have to take account of, of scientific developments and, and new discoveries. I mean, even a list that you in this general area of physical geography and the universe, even a list like the tallest mountains, you would think would be pretty much the same year in and year out. But of course, what happens is that they develop um, new techniques for measuring a mountain, which are much more accurate. And so even the height of Everest, which was fixed for years, is suddenly remeasured and is a little taller than we thought it was. <laughs> I just noticed you've added a foot. Yeah. <laughs> well, your, your list of the, uh, for example, the world's largest lakes is a sad sort of entry. What had once been the number four entry on the list, the Aral Sea, between Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, now is completely dropped off your, your top ten. Yeah, that's, a, that's an environmental disaster, and there's, there's ships kind of sitting in the middle of a desert now because the sea has just dried up. It's, it's all the water that fed the lake. It's a sort of inland sea and was once vast, uh, as you say, in the, once in the top ten in, in the world. Uh, all the, the rivers have been diverted to irrigate the, the surrounding agricultural land, and as a result, this, uh, this is just sort of muddy puddle in the middle. And that same list, though, you did something I noticed that no one else has done. I want to ask you what led to your decision. You've combined Lake Michigan and Lake Huron, which in your list comes in number two behind the Caspian Sea. What led to combining the two? I've never seen anyone do that. You have to respond to what ge geographers, and as you said at the, in the, at the outset, I have a, a degree in geography, although yes. I have to say it was a long time ago. But geographers every now and again change the rules on how you measure things um, so we get the the length of the Nile and the length of the Amazon altering according to whether you measure various tributaries and that kind of thing and latest opinion and I can only bow to it is that the, the, they're considered two lobes of the same lake who am I to argue <laughs> well I guess there's no locks I guess you can sail from one to the other so why aren't they one big lake I, I don't know you could say the same about okay we could keep following every small tributary and every stream that feeds into a large river and say that um, the, the Missouri is six times as long as we thought it was. Well, you can't do that. You've got to sort of stop somewhere. And I think, I guess there's, there's some, some uh, raison d'etre behind this. Russell, I got to admit, I, I'm intrigued with the geographical parts, parts of the book. Quite a few surprises in there. You note that uh, on your list of, well, in an era of global warming, this is kind of an alarming one, you had um, the countries with the lowest elevations. And the, and, and the winner in that was the Maldive Islands with the, the, the height of 7.8 feet is their highest point in the whole archipelago. Yeah, I'm afraid the problem there, of course, is they're going to be the first to go as the, <laughs> as the sea level rises. And, um, uh, you know, all these very low-lying countries, if they happen to also be in a, in a, in a tsunami zone, um, I'm afraid they're, just, they're going to get flooded. And uh, as, sadly, with the, um, with the 2004 tsunami, that's exactly what happened. I'm also surprised to see that uh, Sacramento made at least one of your lists. It tied for eighth with Flagstaff, Arizona, sunniest places in the U.S., 78% sun. I didn't realize we were quite so uh, sunbaked. Um, yep, 
you're you're very lucky as I sit here in uh, in rather gloomy UK at the moment. You're very lucky to have such a sunny place. A lot of your a lot of your lists, are, I think, are, must must get you involved in some arguments. One came to mind. I noticed that uh, you even made mention of that fact in your list of the least intelligent and most intelligent dog breed, and, and heading those respective lists: smart smart dogs, border collies, dumb dogs, Afghan hounds. Yeah, I'm afraid I I, I don't think I ever want to go to a, a sort of kennel club show um, where, where somebody's going to attack me for saying that their, their dog is dumb. Um, this is a, a particular dog specialist's research where he's, he's got them to learn various tasks and remember things and um, do a sort of whole range of kind of IQ tests as a result of which they've been kind of ranked like this. Um, I don't think I want to uh, put my, my head on the block on this one, but, uh, you know, if uh, you know, people have got Afghans and they're regarded as the, the least intelligent or they've got uh, border collies and they're regarded as the most intelligent. I'm sure that um, they each, each of them think that they have the most intelligent dog in the world. Well, Russell, my, my uncle used to have an Afghan hound and my gut reaction tells you you're right in being the dumb dog. <laughs> <laughs> I've met, lo- actually, I've met lots of people who, um, who, who own dogs from either category, the most or the least intelligent, who interestingly either break down into, oh, my dog is the most brilliant, he, he can read my mind, or to, oh, this dog is just so stupid. <laughs> no, one thing people may take some comfort in, I guess your list of shark attacks noted there's a world, uh, world resource on that for the number of attacks since like the 1600s, and the stats really aren't that bad, it doesn't seem like. They're not, they're not too bad. Um, I saw the certain places I don't think I'd like to, to swim um, without a steel cage around me, but, um, you know, certain parts of, of the Australian coast and so on. I mean, hardly a week goes by without you reading about some poor kid who's had his leg bitten off or something. But, but no, and isn't, isn't it extraordinary that the, um, the, these uh, figures should have been collated since the 16th century? Right. One, one particularly depressing statistic I know for our listeners here would be, uh, and this one really caught my eye, top 10 calorie consumers in the world coming in number one, USA, 3,774 per day, which is about 1,000 calories more than we need. It's well over what you need, especially if you're not taking any exercise either. Um, I, um, I was once in Ireland, and we, uh, Ireland also features very prominently in the, in the list of calorie consumers. And I went into a pub for some, and ordered some lunch, and I ordered a, a lasagna. And the, uh, the barman said, and would you like some potatoes and some rice with your lasagna? And I said, well, no, I was just hoping for a small salad or something. He said, oh, I don't think we can manage that. And I mentioned it on a, on a TV show that I was doing that evening, and the guy, the presenter on that, without blinking, just said, you're lucky they didn't offer you cannelloni and macaroni with your lasagna. They do like their calories in, uh, in Ireland. Yes. Well, I noticed Portugal was, was number two in the list, and as a Portuguese-American, that's got to give me pause, both, both lists, both, both entries. Um, <laughs> You talked about a hard time tracking names around the world. I noted that in the U.S., 1% of all surnames are Smith, which, which is really yeah. astounding. Um, very similar figure in the, in the U.K., in fact, um, since we, we, I think we sent them all over to you, but um, <laughs> oh, the, the, the sort of breeding colony of Smiths who came over to the States. Um, that's a very interesting one. I mean, we in the U.K., for example, um, that list would not have changed for many, many years. Um, but now, because of um, uh, immigrant communities, we now have very prominently in, in such a list, we would have the, name, the surname Patel, which yeah. would not have appeared years ago. Sure. Um, just, you know, and so even things you think of, of as fixed, I mean, Christian names, first names change all the time because of 
name fashions, but surnames you'd think would not change much from generation to generation, but indeed they do uh, through, through um, immigration. Now, I always thought that Jones was the number two name, but for our listeners, we'd point out, actually, if you're a Jones, you're tied with Brown at number four, with Johnson second and Williams third. I'm particularly interested in the names. I'm actually do, working on a names book at the moment as a, as a separate enterprise, and I'm, I'm really very, very fascinated by the, the, the sort of range and change of, of names around, particularly uh, in, in English-speaking countries. I think it's a fascinating subject. Well, your book does have quite a few, I guess you'd call them sidebars, things of interest you included besides just the list. I was quite tickled by one uh, one you included, which was H.L. Mencken's collection of odd personal names. They're so, particularly lovely. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, he, he, he dug out for his book on the American language, he dug out names like Oscar Apathy and Barnum Bobo and Christian Girl and George Goatleg. I think these are just great. I, 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 just, I just absolutely love people. I mean, the, I love the idea, which I often find in my research, is that um, somebody who's he's been given one of these um, extremely strange names then has a child and gives them exactly the same name. It's right. almost like saying, well, I've, I've had to live with it, now you can. Yeah, it's a, like a boy named Sue. Or <laughs> well, there are plenty of them. There's, I've, I've uh, I found girls named Reginald. Um, I mean, there's some very strange ones around like that. Transgender names, very common. And also um, this thing called nominative determinism, where uh, somebody has a particular name. Um, uh, you know, they're, they're called um, Smith, and they actually work as a blacksmith. So that kind of thing happens a lot. People seem to be directed into a profession by having a particularly strange name, or a particular name that relates to that profession. Well, for the record, my favorite among the Minkins collection was Anson B. Outhouse, <laughs> worthy of a W.C. Fields movie. I, I know it's just it's just beyond belief, and I mean, it, you sometimes look at these and you don't believe them, and then you check them out, and they turn out to be utterly true. And in fact, in the course of looking, verifying um, them, you actually find even stranger ones. Well, it looks like sometime in the last eighteen years, uh, you've had to change the countries of the world. Something that would seem fairly fixed, but Kazakhstan now comes in at number nine. Uh, also tops your list of the world's uh, largest landlocked countries. So I guess that the breakup of the Soviet Union certainly uh, changed things around. Uh, it did. It, um, uh, yes, uh, Kazakhstan is also the large, largest landlocked country. Um, there are actually, rather, rather interestingly, there's, um, the, there's a number of countries that are sort of doubly landlocked. They're landlocked countries within another country that's also landlocked. They, they have absolutely no sea access whatsoever. Um, now the the breakup of the Soviet Union was interesting because it did did actually create a whole a whole new uh, range of countries, many of which none of us had ever heard of before. I mean, who really knew that there was a country called called Uzbekistan before these were? But now you discover that these places not only are large, uh, but they also have much more oil than, than natural gas than any any of us imagined. Right, um, and they're actually places that have ex- astonishing wealth as a result. Well, speaking of astonishing, one of the entries in your book that really grabbed me uh, was top 10 largest defense budgets. The USA came in number one with $465 billion, but per your list, it's clearly more than the next nine entries combined. It's astonishing, isn't it? I mean, China is, is, is second, but it's, it's a fraction of, of your budget. It is quite extraordinary. I, I mean, I'm particularly interested in the obviously America dominates a number of these lists and you know for good or bad um, it dominates the the defense budget list it also dominates the the list of number of people in prison 
you have over 2 million people in jail. And uh, I've been watching over the 18 years I've been doing the Toxin and Everything, I've been watching the, the, the rise, the sort of inexorable rise in number of prisoners in the USA. And I think there's going to come a point where every single person in the States is in jail because it, it increases annually at a huge rate. Uh, you also have, unfortunately, far more gun murders than anyone else in the world. Um, yes. You have over 9,000 a year. Uh, in the UK, we, we very rarely have more than 70. Um, so that's a fantastic difference, even allowing for the fact that you have five times our population. You have a staggering uh, rate of uh, murder and uh, crime in the States which probably then accounts for the two million people in jail. Yeah. There's so many surprises in your book. I, I wanted to note a few of them, but I just, uh, the list is too long, I think, for the time we have left. But I just mentioned a couple of them, maybe. Um, top ten spoken languages in the world. I always thought English was number two. On your list, it appears that Spanish is now a, a, a surge ahead in the number two position. That's new, isn't it? Yeah, with, with Mandarin or Chinese at number one. And interestingly, I don't know whether this is happening in the States, but... Um, uh, there's a move afoot in the UK now to um, make the, the learning Chinese compulsory in schools. And uh, there, it's, it's started by a few private schools here, but it's going to carry on and, and, and go into the, uh, in, into the state schools. Um, I think everybody has a, an eye to the future with uh, China's sort of rapid economic growth and so on. Um, learning Chinese is just going to be one of those important things. Uh, another one, uh, best-selling books were quite quite amazing. I don't think anyone would be surprised to note the Bible has sold six billion copies since Gutenberg comes in at number one. And maybe not so surprised that number two was the quotations of Chairman Mao, which they printed, I guess, almost a billion copies of. But really got, what got me was the number three on your list, Lord of the Rings, at 100 million sold. Yeah, um, it was only when the, when the Lord of the Rings films came out that they started to make an assessment of just how many they'd, they'd sold. And I think even the publishers were astonished to discover just, just how massive it had been over the years and obviously received a huge boost when, uh, when, the, when the three movies came out. Um, interestingly, though, the, 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 you mentioned the, uh, number two, the quotations from the works of, of Mao Zedong. Um, the, I don't know whether it should be regarded as a bestseller. It's in the list, but it, um, of course it was compulsory for every Chinese citizen to own a copy. Sure. Um, you, you actually got arrested if you didn't have one. So um, it was, uh, I think you know, any, any of us could have a bestseller if you made it compulsory to buy one. <laughs> well, uh, Russell, what stat surprises you the most, maybe, out of among these many? Is there one that stands out to you? I find some that are just, just sort of amusing, like um, the, uh, the countries where sheep most outnumber people, for example, um, where, you know, there's 10, 10 sheep per person in New Zealand, and, but only a 0.02 or a 50th of a sheep per person in the U.S., so you only get a lamb chop each, and uh, you know, some countries get 10 sheep per person, or countries where, you know, the, the, even strange things like the, uh, the, the top fruit crops, which, strangely enough, the some people, um, is headed by tomatoes, because most people don't think of the tomato as a fruit. Sure. It is. It's a, botanically, is a fruit. And 125 million tons of tomatoes are grown every year. And then in the book, in the top of everything, we show an illustration of people going berserk with tomatoes, because there's a festival that happens in Spain, the Tomatina Festival, where they just throw around several tons of tomatoes. And we have a picture of people just sort of bathing in a sea of tomatoes. It's quite extraordinary. So both in the illustrations and in the content of the book, we have some pretty weird stuff. Yes, and I, I, I'm quite amused by things like your fact that, uh, that, that the Oscars since the 19, 1950, uh, if you have an Oscar, you've got to sell it back to the Academy. You or your heirs for $1. 
Yeah, it's um, it's one of the, the, the stipulations when you're presented with one. You're not allowed to, to it's not allowed to be sold on the open market anymore, huh. um, and which is r- rather tragic for people who are, you know, former Oscar winners who are down on their luck and want to sell it. <laughs> All they're going to get is a buck, which is not really very much considering all that effort you put into earning it. Yes. Well, final question, Russell. What can a listener do? I'm sure some of our uh, folks out there have their hearts set on making a future edition of... How do they get into your book? Uh, well, one way... I mean, we actually give some, some pointers in, in the book. If you get hold of a copy of the Top Ten of Everything, um, you could... Uh, as you were just mentioning Oscars, you could actually become an actor, and if you get nominated for, for six Oscars, you'll be in a couple of lists, um, uh, especially if you win one before your 21st birthday, because not many people have managed to do that. Or you could... Um, make about 12, 20 films that earn about $3.7 billion, which is what the James Bond series has, has done. So it's, a, it's made a pile of money. Or you could, um, you could drive a car at over 763 miles an hour. That would get you into a list of the, of the land speed record holders. Or you could be, become a king or a queen and rule for more than 59 years. That would get you into a list. You see how hard it is to get into these lists. Yes, but, but worthy goals, all of them. I think it's worth a go. Oh, you could win, win eight Olympic medals. That's, gonna come, that's coming up, of course. You can go to Beijing in, uh, in 2008 or come to England, come to London in 2012 and, uh, and win eight, eight medals, and you'll be in, straight into one of my lists. The book is The Top Ten of Everything 2007. We've been speaking with author Russell Ash in London. Mr. Ash, thank you very much for speaking with us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break.